Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast with me, Ben Plumley, And this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. Our guest today is Kirk Skirto, a doctor and global health expert. And he recently published a new book, Doing Global Health Work, a very modest title for a profoundly important set of observations from over 20 years working around the world to support local communities improve their health and well-being. His thoughts and recommendations predate to a large extent the current debates around decolonialization and localization in global health, and they offer deep, sometimes uncomfortable recommendations on what we can do on an individual level for those of us passionately committed to social justice in global health. The book, Doing Global Health Work, is published by Hesperian, a California-based nonprofit that has been providing and sharing easy-to-understand health information for people worldwide. Kirk, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. Th- thank you, Ben. Now, where are you calling in from? You're, you're, although Hesperian is based in uh, California, you're not, right? Yes, I'm based in Buffalo, New York. And before we get into the global health work, I, I wondered if I could ask you a little bit about the clinical services you provide and do in Buffalo, uh, New York, because you work with one of the um, Native American communities, don't you? Yes, the Tanawana Seneca Nation. You want to tell us a bit about them, who they are, and what kind of medical needs you find that you all are having to provide? They're very impressive uh, people, and they're part of the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy, uh, or or, uh, Iroquois, or Six Nations, as they're commonly known. Uh, so it's a very traditional nation uh, within them, uh, about a thousand people. It's really been a pleasure to work with them. I, I consider it doing global health work within within North America, driving to a different nation each day, learning so much about their culture. And it's uh, it's been an honor to to be a part of their medical system. I, I've got to say, I'm on this podcast. We've been very interested in understanding. Um, the health needs and creativity in delivering services that indigenous communities and nations um, have been able to employ. Many times, uh, it looking like we need to um, learn from uh, learn from those communities ourselves, particularly when it comes to sort of frontline care. But I wondered, you've written this book, doing global health work for Hesperian. What? got you interested in that? And why did you decide you needed to write the book now? So many amazing, inspiring experiences in global health and so many troubling experiences and seeing groups you know, that are working very hard and have very honest intentions, but the product of their work quite often is, is, is not really empowering local communities, is not really helping them. Um, so uh, you know, people, I, I got my roots you know, um, essentially going on this, this uh, uh, sophomore year college trip to Jamaica. And it was uh, uh, joining a medical team and, and traveling from village to village and providing uh, healthcare uh, to, to many, many people uh, in, in these settings. And it was so inspiring. We were so appreciative. Uh, um, and it, it really inspired me. I, I couldn't decide whether to go into clinical medicine or, or to go into uh, community work and public health, global health. And this really clinched it for me. I said, I, I have to go into this field. I decided at that point to apply for medical school, apply for public health school. Sort of a hand-in-glove uh, career. Now, in the book, and, and I suppose this really gets us to the huge elephant in the room, 
you really address the responsibilities of people working um, in global health, uh, particularly those from the north, in how they um, approach their work with different communities. Um, and in many ways, I think you have anticipated this whole uh, global health decolonialization agenda from a northern perspective. Um, and I wondered if you could just share your thoughts about that. I mean, already I can hear you talking about service and support and the privilege that it is for you to um, essentially provide your services to their leadership. And that's not necessarily the way that many people in the global health field feel about their work. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. I think it's a very accurate way to put it. I've had an easy life. I've had a privileged life. And, you know, in resource limited countries, it is it is quite the opposite. And uh, we can abuse our privilege, again, with very honest intentions. You know, trying to help others, we can actually disempower them and, and, and force on these solutions that we believe we uh, uh, have created um, in an accurate way. But uh, but really, many times we, we, we really err. And I think I should go back to that initial Jamaica trip, because although it was so inspiring for me and I decided to go into global health, uh, you know, at the end of the trip, you know, a resident was sitting around a bonfire uh, with us and said, look, this trip is more about us. Uh, what, what are we actually doing to help the community in a long-term way? And, and at the time it went over my head, I didn't understand what he had meant. But in college, I was studying global poverty, I was studying public health, uh, and I was involved with, with social justice activism. Uh, and, and, you know, reflecting deeper on, on what I learned and going on the second trip to rural Mexico, setting up a village uh, for one day in one community, then another village, another village. Then I started thinking, well, what about the other 364 days in, in the year? What, what kind of healthcare are they getting? What does their local healthcare system look like? And, and why are we not working with Mexican providers who, of course, have a much better command of Spanish and, and know the culture and can follow up and know where to refer patients? They know the social determinants of health. Uh, you know, they're they're the stars of care, you know, throughout the year. And, and why are we doing this separate initiative? Uh, so I became very critical at this point of what I call suitcase medicine. You know, dropping into these communities and, and uh, opening up your suitcase, dishing out medicines, dishing out medical supplies, uh, and not doing sustainable work, uh, not allowing the community to take center stage, and importantly, not not working within their their, their mainstream healthcare system. Uh, so, so you know, I had a, I had a long journey with with many mistakes that I read extensively about, and and also many uh, inspirational times when I saw communities doing amazing work and outsiders doing amazing work um, as well. So, so taking uh, you know what I'd seen work very poorly in in these settings, I said I'm going to do something very different. I was following a model of, of essentially adopting a, a village in a long term partnership led by local people, and I did this in in rural Uganda. And uh, spent a couple summers out there with with teams, and um, so uh, we knew that they wanted us to focus on HIV education. So so we did this, and we trained uh, peers, uh, you know, to be HIV educators. Uh, and we learned that the clean water needs were were absolutely exponential. But by this point, I, I could appreciate that the public health needs uh, nearly always, you know, dramatically trump the clinical needs in resource limited nations. Uh, so we're trying to focus on public health issues. And they said, we want you to focus on water. We designed a program to organize the building of, of wells. And this was a mistake. This was the second big lesson in global health. You know, local people need to lead. Outsiders need to follow. I think this is, this is critical because we made the wells. 
uh, the burden was on us and we were rarely there. Uh, it, had we fostered the creation of local committees to sustain the wealth that no doubt we're, we're going to break down at some point, uh, it would have been far more sustainable and centered on, on the community. Suitcase medicine. I actually, I really love that phrase. I mean, uh, back in the day, uh, I remember calling it white elephant um, medicine, where you'd come in, do something, upset everybody, and then go away. And it has the impact, actually, of being very expensive and time-consuming for the communities themselves, not necessarily providing the long-term uh, benefits that you know well-meaning providers and development professionals want to actually want to to, to provide and give. So you recognised that um, suitcase medicine wasn't wasn't doing it. How did you then evolve into thinking of a, a, a sort of a more servant-oriented technical support to the communities you worked, worked with? Um, I mean, you've described the wells in uh, rural Uganda, but where did you start to see that you were beginning to have actually a meaningful impact? Yes, uh, I, I started in, in Uganda that, and then refined uh, my choices of global health groups I was working with and, and which approaches I was choosing to follow and, and which agendas I was following. So we all have agendas if we're, if we're doing work, but are they, are they agendas that are helping local people or are they agendas that are, are self-serving, make us feel good? So I became very critical of charity, although in college, you know, I was this uh, uh, charity um, basic community service organizer in a community service dorm. So I very much followed the the methodology. Then became very critical that charities doing things for other people and, and and giving them things is not giving them the power to control their own health and in their own health care and to do it in in their own way. And charity actually disempowers uh, uh, communities. And and if communities are empowered and they have little interest in charity, they have little need for for charity. But basically, little need for for outsider involvement which really is the goal to work ourselves out of a job. Um, so, so I became basically obsessed, you know, with, with the notion of, boy, what, what does the evidence show in the literature and what do I see in my experience working with these groups in terms of how can we uh, empower communities as much as possible, uh, which approaches are going to help improve health status as best we, we can, um, you know, which are, uh, you know, um, going to uh, be sustainable uh, um, as well. Uh, so, um, through these journeys, I went to many areas that are chronically poor and also did disaster relief a couple times in Haiti, Dominica, and, and, and Burma. And, you know, there were, you know, certain experiences that really stood out for me and, uh, you know, showed me that these approaches can be extremely, extremely helpful. Uh, for example, going into a community in, in El Salvador uh, where refugees had fled the civil war and came back to their, to their home village. Uh, they analyzed their health issues, developed really impressive health programs and, and human rights programs. Um, including those targeted at, at, at um, HIV um, and alcoholism. Uh, and they really positioned outsiders to be supported partners very much in the background, which is exactly where we should be. They were the center stage and, and they did incredible work. Um, so at residency, I did a global health residency and, and uh, uh, we partnered with uh, Lenka indigenous people in the mountains of, of Honduras. And over a series of trips, you know, I really saw that they uh, did a tremendous job Worked on all these public health programs in, in tandem, uh, developing fish farms, developing sustainable agriculture, uh, piping spring water to their villages and houses, uh, uh, building latrines, 
small microfinance projects to uh, uh, improve gardens and, and nutrition. Very inspiring. I spent two years in rural Puerto Rico providing uh, primary care and partnering with an environmental health um, initiative and, and learned a lot about sort of the dependency relationship with the United States that, that, that creates many problems, but there are many inspired people fighting against it and being uh, sustainable in, in their work. Um, my wife and I also spent two years uh, in Botswana and Tanzania, and it was a health system strengthening partnership uh, with the Ministry of Health and, and, and others. And uh, we trained local providers to do an even better care doing HIV work, TB and malnutrition care. And we learned a lot from them in, in the process. And also we did three trips to Sierra Leone in which uh, we you know, sat down and brainstormed with folks. Look, we're in folks groups and tell us about your, your main health issues. What, what do you want to work on? Water and sanitation was, was really at the top and uh, not wanting to repeat previous mistakes. You know, I really sought out uh, uh, the local assets, the people that were movers and shakers and had knowledge and wanted to make improvements in water and sanitation. Turned out there were water and sanitation committees that, that, that had died. And the project was really to resuscitate these committees, to do teach-ins, get folks inspired, do community walks, uh, community mapping. And, and they elected women to lead these committees, and they did tremendous jobs identifying many ways that can improve their water and sanitation. Um, so, so across this journey, you know, over these many experiences, you know, I wanted to share uh, many, many stories about methods that I've seen work quite well and that the evidence uh, uh, supports uh, as well. You talk about community leadership and that the support of um, international partners like yourself is to be in the background. How does that actually work out in practice? Because, you know, we, we have in our minds this sort of, uh, how shall I call it, Facebook charity where folks, um, you know, go into communities, have photographs taken of themselves. I'm using that as a sort of a fairly extreme example, but the yeah. point is that the uh, the donor, the uh, the expert coming in from the north, is very much center stage. So, how do you not even get up on the stage, as it were? Are there examples in the book that that you've been able to identify? It's, it's a great question. Uh, many, many, many examples. Um, it, and I think it really depends which approach and which agendas we're, we're choosing to follow. So we talked a bit about suitcase medicine, and it's inherently top-down, outsider organized. You're providing free healthcare, uh, you know, apart from the public health system. And, and you know, commonly causes quite a bit of damage, uh, causes economic harm uh, in many cases. It's been shown to increase the unemployment rate of, of local health workers as we come in frequently and create a dependency. And it, it lowers the self-confidence um, of the community to take care of, of themselves. Also, we come in pretty clueless. You know, we're medical tourists. We don't know about the culture and the needs and uh, the language. It's quite easy to cause harm. And quite a bit of that has happened. It's been documented, unfortunately. Um, now, uh, the second, what I call traditional approach that has been followed for many years and, and uh, groups, unfortunately, are commonly still following it, especially clinical groups, uh, is outsider-led health facility building which again is inherently uh, top down that, you know, as outsiders saying, oh boy, your community needs quite a bit of healthcare and your health services uh, in the facility are not very impressive. So we're going to build our own. It's going to be better funded more efficient and have more supplies. And what it tends to do is to pull staff away from the local health facilities and take resources away and take confidence away. So what often happens is the local health facility then uh, becomes crippled and, and many times closes 
Uh, and, and meanwhile, you know, we have to say, well, boy, is the outsider facility going to take care of the job and, and be sustainable? Uh, it's the aim, but in practice, for a wide variety of reasons, it, it typically closes down. And this uh, is, a, is, is a devastating blow to, to healthcare. So when we pick these approaches, you know, I think uh, they're inherently uh, not going to have local people in center stage. But, but of course, if local people decide they want to uh, build a clinic and they lead the whole way and they are there every step of the process, we're very much in the background. I think it's uh, it can be helpful. Uh, so the other five approaches that really I spend the bulk of, of, of the book describing methods that have worked and many examples, uh, they inherently place local people in, in the center, but we have to be cautious and make sure that, that, that it actually happens. Uh, so number one is is training um, health workers. You know, we have massive, massive shortage of health workers uh, around the world. Uh, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, it's it's over 4 million. Currently, it is projected to increase in, in 2030 to over 6 million. Uh, so how can they have you know the health care that they need without, without the workers? Uh, further expanding the training of these workers is very, very helpful. And many times clinicians can only go for, or students for like a two week trip, but we can do a good deal of training on two weeks, but, um, or in training new health workers um, as well. But it needs to be uh, topics selected by local people. It needs to flow in both directions. Otherwise, it can be a top down sort of lecturing process that makes people feel less intelligent. Of course, local people are very smart, very experienced, do a good job caring for their folks. Um, in addition to clinical training, another approach is public health training. Um, as we work in these public health areas, you know, whether it be um, indoor air, water, sanitation, et cetera, we can, we can prevent disease, expand vaccination programs, and, and so forth. Uh, so training public health workers and going over with, with public health teams and putting, of course, as always, local people in the lead of these teams can be quite helpful. Additionally, strengthening the health system in one or more ways uh, can be tremendously sustainable work that can cut across so many different diseases and so many different uh, demographic groups. Um, and whether that be, uh, you know, doing quality improvement work, um, making the medicine uh, uh, distribution system more efficient. You know, of course, the, the topics need to be selected by Ministry, Ministry of Health, by the um, facilities, the local health workers. But again, if we partner in the background and do the uncomfortable job of joining an unfamiliar system that may have many inefficiencies and, and may be difficult to work with, it's tempting to just create our own, but it's just not as helpful. Additionally, community-based programs in which uh, local people build them, you know, brainstorm, figure out what assets they have, what problems they have, how they want to use their assets to solve their problems, uh, and, and you know, uh, build it up and take it where they want to go and scale it up. This can be really helpful. And sometimes they would like outsiders to be facilitators of the process if it's not already started. And, and I really enjoy this work I did a lot in Sierra Leone. I'll uh, cite a lot of examples of this, but but it's, it's ideally done the facilitation also by by local people, and if they identify just a few resources that they lack, and if they say, "Look, could you help out with these?" and we have a supplementary role, it can be quite helpful. Or the troubleshoot problems too. Additionally, in uh, the last approach uh, that I write extensively about is is professional disaster relief. So not simply waiting for a natural disaster or a war and coming in and seeing as many patients as you can, but following an evidence based public health approach in which you're, you're really addressing uh, the, the basic needs that are unmet, whether they be housing, food, uh, uh, security. Um, and you know, folks that love to go abroad and do healthcare, this is a really nice field to get into as long as you're part of a team that's doing bigger public health approaches. And, and it can be quite helpful to see patients you know, in these settings because maybe the health facility has been bombed or destroyed by an earthquake and, and they may need temporary supplementary care. 
this podcast is is uh, housed by the Global Listening Project, which is a spin-off of the Vaccine Confidence Project. And it actually speaks directly to what you're talking about, the idea that we have to build preparedness in advance for a range of um, potential crises in front of us, whether it's pandemics or whether it's disasters, uh, the consequences of, um, of, of wars or civil wars. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting um, in this work is sort of moving beyond the, the authorities at the top of the pyramid, as it were, um, yeah. because one criticism might be that we're essentially replacing the, um, uh, the prejudices and um, priorities of uh, northern institutions with, you know, political um, governmental institutions that might also not be um, as closely connected to communities as they might be. And, and so how do you advise going? Um, do you go to communities to ask how you can help? Or how do you how do you put yourself in a place where you can be responsive to requests that they may have for your for your expertise? It's a great question. I, I think it's very important to to not go abroad unless there's a genuine invitation to go. Um, and, and typically, you know, uh, uh, folks are applying to work with pre-existing global health groups to volunteer or or to work abroad. And I think um, it's very important to do the research and look at the agendas of this group and whether they've really uh, rooted them in the agendas of the community, what they want us to partner with, and if these uh, partnerships always have to be locally led. Um, so doing this research before going abroad, I think, is is critical. Otherwise, you know, you can you can join what I would call a neo-colonial global health group that is imposing the decisions and values and and guesses at what is most needed in these communities. And there there's a lot of that going on. And I've uh, I've ended up uh, being part of multiple groups that that do this. And as soon as I see this happening, of course, I try to shift the group in a more productive direction and further empower the communities, give them more of a voice. But if if the outsiders are not listening, I I leave the group and you know look for more uh, genuine, sincere partners because there is there is so much um, around the world in terms of as you mentioned, you know, uh, importance of this decolonization agenda. Um, there's so much top-down work that is hurting more, more than helping. I write two chapters on social justice because I believe this is the root of public health and public health is the root of global health. Uh, so we need to look at the history of global health to appreciate why empowering local communities is so important. And it's such a radical shift from how uh, global health was first born. Um, so it was rooted essentially in, in largely European countries um, colonizing uh, many, many places, stealing resources, stealing people, leaving these places further in, impoverished. Um, and then uh, that was essentially where tropical medicine came from. Well, we care about the health of the colonists. So we want to help them deal with these diseases. You know, they were not aiming to improve the health of populations. And this was, you know, uh, followed by many vertical top-down programs that were focused on certain diseases. And they were not rooted in the community voice. They really didn't, uh, uh, they really didn't work. And unfortunately, we see the legacy of, of this. There's so many top-down programs uh, uh, continuing um, and there's so many ways that uh, outsiders are further harming lower-income nations and stunting their, their health. I, I review some in the book, like, for example, the, the illegitimate debts 
rich countries are are you know expecting these very poor countries to pay rather than paying for for their health needs and addressing the social determinants of health. Oh, this is critical. Meanwhile, the IMF and World Bank come in and say, well, we'll give you loans, but you have to further cut your health services. You have to further cut your education services, which is adding fuel to, to the fire. Uh, meanwhile, rich countries are recruiting the health workers that are desperately needed in resource limited nations. Uh, this brain drain is, is, is shameless and it needs to have a binding treaty to prevent it. At the same time, rich countries you know, are in the most wealthy within them and the largest corporations within, especially fossil fuel corporations, are creating climate change. And, and we're in a world where uh, resource-limited countries are facing the worst effects uh, from this. And meanwhile, our rich nations are, are not providing climate reparations that they can adapt to these to these horrors. Um, so, you know, programs that try to reverse this artificial dependency on, on rich countries are, are really brilliant, like the, you know, the technology transfer hubs that are, are going abroad and helping folks to manufacture their own medicines, and their own vaccines. This is so important. Uh, after all, look what happened with, with the pandemic. You mentioned uh, uh, emergencies in, in global health. The COVID pandemic, uh, you know, rich countries hoarded the vaccines. Uh, and, and even today, if you look at the numbers, sub-Saharan Africa, you know, many countries are, are only something like 20% vaccinated. Uh, and this is... Uh, a, a legacy of this, you know, institutionalization of selfishness, basically. And um, so we need to reform global health on so many levels, including the, these macro levels, like uh, uh, the the World Trade Organization, you know, uh, is dramatically worsened at this, this situation by negotiating the, the TRIPS agreement. And there's supposed to be, a, so it protects intellectual property rights, including uh, vaccine patents. Uh, and you have this life-saving COVID vaccine, well, multiple ones circulating, and uh, resource-limited nations do not get it. There is a waiver that is supposed to apply to pandemics, but it took nearly two years for this waiver to be implemented. It, in the course of the pandemic, at that point, it wasn't really uh, needed. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, these are two years that all these nations could be making their own vaccines. They were you know, pushing the WTO, please, please, please let us do this. We want to prevent all these unnecessary deaths. Uh, there's so many ways, including a pandemic treaty, that that you know we could prevent problems like this. It needs to be binding. Uh, you know, it needs to allow the distribution of vaccines based on the number of people in need, not based on how rich a nation is. WTO, sorry, WHO needs to be dramatically funded. There's so many levels in global health we can do less harm, and we should. Which sort of gets us on to one of the other big questions I had reading the book and you approach public health you approach the provision of clinical services actually in a in a very um political way actually um the interventions that you see communities asking for are <clears throat> essentially the basic tools of democratization, education, local health workers there to provide um, primary primary or uh, universal health coverage. And, you know, you've also taken a very strong interest in the One Health Agenda, which, of course, connects the dots between the way we treat our environment, um, the way we interact with animals, and, of course, and then the way that the... Uh, um, that we ourselves get put um, 
in positions of exposure to new infectious disease um, threats. And I, and I wonder, um, you know, we'll, we'll come on to the advice you're giving to young folks wanting to pursue careers in global health, but I wonder, given these structural obstacles, do you really think we can make a difference as workers in global health? It's a great question. Yeah, I really like the term that the late Paul Farmer used, the, the structural violence and it is stuff. The very structure of society and especially our economic system uh, that I think is creating so much of the ill health around the world. Um, and actually there's tremendous evidence to to support that that claim. Uh, so is this political work? Yes, all all public health work is political. It's a it's a dirty term, but you know, it's deciding, you know, society's priorities. You know, do we care about preventing disease? Do we care about housing? You know, do we do we care about education? Do we care about expanding healthcare? Um, I hope folks are answering yes, and, and they're saying, "Look, you know, we need to uh, become advocates." And uh, you know, I've, I've been talking about macro level issues. I know you often do on on your show, uh, but uh, I don't think folks have to get involved in that level if they're not comfortable. Um, you know, simply uh, going over and, and being a good partner, and uh, you know, facilitating local people to lead the way and saying, "Look, I, I want to support you. I want to learn what's going on." You know about your community health problems and 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 I'm sure you've thought about solutions and, and maybe you already have programs designed at them. You know, would would you want us to partner and could we assist you in some small way? Coming in with this this humble kind of evidence-based approach, I, I think um, although it, it may seem quite small, you know, compared with the daunting challenges in global health, but um, if if every global health organization was taking this approach, it would have so many ripple effects and it could really help to shift uh, you know, the, the empowerment status where, where we saw so many nations so much more control over their health and healthcare and rich nations have, have so much less, which is a very good thing. As you look back on your career, how have things changed? Let's say from a structural level, but from the kind of um, health challenges that you uh, were being asked to help communities respond to or prepare against. For example, did you see the HIV epidemic transform your um, your clinical work and your public health work, or were there other challenges like um, uh, vaccinations of young kids? What was the feel of of the sort of the journey that you had over your career? Have had over your career because your career is by no means over. I apologise for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, Yes, it's it's true. HIV has has had a, a, a big effect. You know that, that initial trip uh, to Uganda, and in that area of the country at the time, they were estimating thirty uh, percent um, HIV prevalence rate, which is very much why they asked us to do education and to train folks to to be educators. Uh, and then we ended up, you know, uh, uh, hiring local groups to do more testing and, and counseling, and, and so it very much informed the work uh, that we did. And, and as I was. You know, medical school, and of course, I went into family medicine, but I became an HIV specialist and a tropical medicine specialist. You, know, after being abroad on many, many trips and, and seeing uh, the, the great need for that, that, not only HIV care, but you know, this partnership of mutual support and can I help troubleshoot and answer questions and, and connect you with resources that can can uh, help with this important work that you're that you're doing. Um, so, you know, we've seen some dramatic improvements, of course, in, in the scale up of, of HIV care. Um, but there are so many challenges yet, 
yet to to emerge and and uh, and even even we see you're talking about global health trends. You know, with the COVID pandemic, you know, of course, so much attention shifted from HIV care programs and TB care programs and these these malaria initiatives that were finding much success in vaccination programs that had tremendous rates. You know, finally in many lower income nations, and then. Um, COVID enters and, of course, distracts attention, importantly. And, you know, we're really seeing a crisis now of uh, dropping vaccination rates and uh, increasing cases of TB and, and uh, more drug resistance. Uh, so there are so many challenges and, and uh, these larger uh, global level uh, trends, you know, shape really every every type of global health program um, under it. You've mentioned Uganda a few times and I... I... I guess I have to ask you this. Uh, Uganda, of course, has been much in the news in uh, the last few months over the passing of a new piece of legislation that um, uh, further uh, persecutes uh, the LGBT um, plus communities. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are about it and, and how your methodology of support to communities themselves uh, how that then fits into this. Uh, where I'm going with this is, is there a tension between um, what communities say they want versus the um, uh, versus the uh, sort of rights-based approach that public health has started to embrace over the last few years? I mean, is there a tension there or, or, or is it actually totally manufactured? Uh, I... I haven't studied details on this legislation, but uh, but I've read about the basics, and it sounds it sounds very very troubling, and uh, and this puts outsiders in a in a dilemma, because we want to advocate uh, for systems and laws and and, and policies that are that are open uh, to uh, the LGBTQ plus community receiving excellent healthcare as as they deserve, um, but if we're working in communities where where the majority of folks uh, are supporting this legislation, you know. Um, it it is quite difficult uh, to uh, to know when to um, speak up. You know, it, it's very important for us to to, to be honest and and, and share um, what we believe. But these are not our societies to determine uh, what their governments are are going to do and what laws they're going to pass. This is the job of the people. Uh, there's so much social in, injustice out there, and uh, you know, outsiders could come in. And, you know, and, and start movements and revolutions and say, look, you need to make your country go in this direction, this direction. And this would, uh, although it may improve, you know, certain aspects of human rights and, and public health, such as this example, uh, it would be a neo-colonial relationship. Again, us coming in and telling folks what to do. So I think modeling, uh, you know, just work and just behavior and just policy, you know, can can be a very important message and seeing opportunities to share these messages and hopefully uh, get folks thinking about how they could be more open and do a better job helping their own people. And of course, in the case of Uganda, there have been reports that, um, in fact, it was uh, uh, the US uh, far-right uh, religious groups that helped craft and, uh, and, and, and help, uh, you know, pilot uh, this legislation through it's not something new it's been unfortunately something that's been building up for a for a good few years so yeah I, I I think you're absolutely right and it's again speaks to us as um servant leaders rather than um and I pick this word deliberately rather than crusaders 
So you put together the book, you worked with Hesperian to publish it. Why Hesperian? What, what's the collaboration been like for you with Hesperian? Yeah, so uh, you know, I'd read a number of Hesperian books and I've, and I've used them uh, where there is no doctor helping health workers learn. I find these very, very helpful uh, books to pass on to health workers abroad and to assist with their training. So Hesperian is a very inspiring publisher that basically, you know, publishes these manuals and books in medical empowerment. Obviously, I'm a big fan of medical empowerment, and and uh, I thought this would be the perfect place to house the book. Uh, so I was, you know, very excited when they expressed interest in and in, in publishing it. Um, so they're, you know, they're really doing incredible work um, trying to get these books translated in so many languages to empower health workers to do a better job with care, even folks in the middle of nowhere. Uh, where they have a real, real shortage. You know, it's not like you have to give up uh, um, on healthcare. There's a lot of very important lessons. They use illustrations and, and very basic language folks can understand. Um, and, and additionally, they're they're supporting the people's health movement. They have uh, health wiki and apps. There's so many levels that Asperian can uh, encourage, you know, the, the sort of grassroots agendas I've been talking about. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, there they are, established in the 1970s, um, the written word and the uh, written graphic uh, and comic, if you like, um, is what they're rooted in. And it's fascinating to see them now looking at digital um, um, video and app-based approaches to their to their services. I mean, I've got to say, I found uh, the publications over the years, particularly in relation to HIV, hugely helpful. Uh, to to people like myself who perhaps can't uh, review the uh, and stay on top of the uh, published peer-reviewed uh, medical literature. So they've been really helpful aid memoirs. And I guess, Kirk, that gets us really to the future and uh, what happens from here. I loved that you were really bringing the... Uh, the richness of your expertise to help inform and encourage people thinking about careers in global health. What would be your message to them around what they should do and uh, um, and where they sort of, let's say, leave their white coats in their laboratories? Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I would really encourage folks to not be overwhelmed by the many global health challenges to focus on, you know, if you have that inspiration and interest, please stick with it. We really need your help in global health, especially if you're going to be, you know, a humble partner in the background and have local communities lead. But I encourage folks to spend a good deal of time studying and preparing before they, before they get involved in this work. Um, I think uh, uh, studying the history of colonization and globalization uh, is very important. Uh, studying public health extensively and the whole field of global health and I think, you know, having as much experience as, as they can have uh, in resource-limited nations, whether it be a study abroad program, uh, um, an internship, uh, extended living um, in these communities, you know, learning about the language, learning the culture. And I would say, very importantly, developing equitable friendships. And, you know, what once most folks are, uh, you know, have a large group of friends in resource-limited nations and say, oh boy. I really respect these people. These folks are very smart. They're very capable. They're doing great work. Um, when when you're in that position, that I, I I think you're ready to be an equitable partner and to start getting involved in, in global health work. So many folks, you know, I mentioned that the charity mindset that you know they see the images on TV and they oh my gosh, you know they're these starving people 
without healthcare, anything that we do, anything that we bring over to them, we got to donate things, we got to give them free care. You know, all these things will be very helpful, and it's it's uh, it's an intuitive leap, but unfortunately, the evidence shows it just it just is not there. So when you're sort of primed to uh, have this background and to really treat folks as being very capable and, and you as being supplementary. It, and maybe you won't even be asked to come or maybe you get there and they say, look, we're doing great. We'll teach you some things, but we don't actually need your help. Um, the, the afterword of the book uh, involves uh, uh, Robin Young and Jessica Everett from uh, Child Family Health International answering that question and, uh, with, with the expression, uh, 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 don't just stand there, do something. They flip it on his head and say, you know, don't just do something, stand there. And that is their advice uh, for students of, of global health. You know, don't just jump in there and um, be inspired by the challenges and just do as much as you can. Um, you know, be deliberate, learn as much as you can. You know, do a lot of observation and slowly, slowly get yourself more involved in the capacity that you're being a helpful partner. Kirk, this has been a really fascinating and challenging conversation. And, and I mean, here we are a podcast, an audio video podcast, but a podcast nonetheless. And so words matter. And I, I sense that you and I are sort of struggling with capturing the right words and the right phrases and the right descriptions of what it is that needs to, to happen going forward. You know, on one hand, people might say, why are two white men having a conversation about uh, global health priorities. What do we know? But I guess the point is that's precisely right. What do we know? And it's a question of, of providing our tools um, when invited to communities to help them utilize them as best they, best they can. I think that's really well put, Ben. And making sure that our, our largest lessons are coming from the communities themselves abroad. As I would say, definitely my, my enduring lessons came from them. And that's exactly where they should be coming from. You know, the other part of it, which we, we referred to or alluded to, but the learnings are actually two-way. And um, I've been really fascinated over the course of the pandemic to see how uh, First Nation communities in Canada, um, uh, Native American communities in uh, the United States, and particularly the Cherokee and Navajo nations, have actually provided, I think, really incredible insights in how to address and build trust, rebuild trust in medical services, the role of uh, young people as educators of elders, and the utilization of, you know, established um, uh, values and rituals um, and belief systems to help uh, to help reinforce um, you know innovative um, approaches to providing healthcare that are, are bottom up rather than top down and um, I really think um, your book helps uh, you know really reinforce that. Well, I appreciate you saying that, I, and I do agree. I think Westerners can can learn so much from indigenous communities, and there's such a history of sustainable living, how living with the environment, considering the environment part of health as it is, and not and not something separate, and 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 being very grassroots and and seeking consensus and not looking to who's powerful. Well, this this is our leader. Our leader determines our policy, whether it's going to help people or not. Um, so there, there's, there's so many lessons for global health that that I, I feel indigenous communities can provide for us. Well, Kirk, 
thank you so much. Um, you really are a shot in the arm. Thank you so much for a really uh, invigorating conversation. Um, your book, uh, Doing Global Health um, by Kirk Skato, uh, available through Hesperian uh, on website, uh, and you can uh, Google it and find it very easily. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Ben. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Kirk Skirto, and don't forget to check out his book, Doing Global Health Work. It's available on Hesperian's website and at all good bookstores. Thanks also to Vanessa Tran from Hesperian for perseverance in helping us schedule the recording of this episode. As always, thanks to our director and producer, Eric Aspera from Newsdoc Media, and a particular shout out to our production assistant, Waisha Raphael, who researched today's episode. A Shot in the Arm podcast is a project of the Global Listening Project and a member of the Health Podcast Network. You can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms and on our YouTube channel. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe for prompt access to new episodes from this and our sister podcast, The Global Health Diplomats. And finally, have a great week and a safe week, everybody.